Scott Jennings here. Thanks for listening to the Flyover Country podcast. This is the second part of a two-part series. Last week, we heard from my friend Patrick Ruffini with Echelon Insights, a Republican strategist, pollster, and data guy about his new book about the new emerging working class multiracial coalition in the Republican Party. This week, I invited on a Democrat strategist named Mark Riddle. Mark's a Kentuckian, lives in Florida now, but a national Democrat strategist who has some slightly different opinions than Patrick. But what I wanted to do was present a conversation with both of them, with all of you, uh, to sort of hear how the party's top strategists are viewing some of the changing demographics in both the Republican and Democratic Party. We also talked about young voters. We talked about soccer moms. We talked about Joe Biden versus Donald Trump. We talked about third party candidates and how they may change the election. Uh, And we talked a little bit about what we can expect tactically out of both presidential campaigns. Mark Riddle is a terrific guy. He and I do a lot of corporate speaking together. We've been sparring partners over the years, and I have a lot of respect for him and what he's done in his career. This week on Flyover Country, a conversation with Democrat strategist Mark Riddle starts now. Attention passengers, we ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat or in the overhead compartments. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is prepared for takeoff. And thanks for listening to Flyover Country. I'm Scott Jennings and glad to have in studio with us today my friend and Democrat political strategist, Mark Riddle. Mark, thanks for joining us. Scott, absolutely. Happy holidays, buddy. Happy holidays to you. Mark and I have been uh, spending some time together uh, this year. We've done a few panel discussions. Uh, uh, We've become uh, semi-frequent sparring partners on the uh, speaking circuit. And I uh, I just have to say, Mark, uh, while you're on here and and not while while I'm recording by myself, that I I really do respect your career and your perspective and and have listened to you over the years and have had a lot of uh, a lot of respect for your insights, which is why I wanted to bring you on uh, the podcast this week. So th- this is a a second conversation of a two-part series. Last week, I talked with Patrick Ruffini, who's a Republican pollster and data analytics strategist. And really, we talked about his book, which is The Changing Nature of the Republican Party in this uh, you know blue-collar, multiracial, working-class influx that's going into the party and changing the party. And I wanted to have you on to sort of talk about the other side of the equation and whether you, with all of your years of experience dealing with electing Democrats, see any kind of comparable shifting. And so I think that's where I'm going to start. Patrick's hypothesis is that if you look at the polling and you look at the data, you have a lot of former Democratic voters, blue collar voters, former union, maybe some current union uh, and and people that are African-American, Hispanic all kind of gravitating towards the Republican Party. Do you agree with this shift? And uh, and uh, we'll start there. Uh, first, Scott, thank you. And thank you for the kind words. And I'm a huge fan of yours. And I know you have a tough job day in, day out on CNN. Um, so I always enjoy uh, watching you on there. You know, um, there's a lot of conversation right now about the different, you know, long-term shifts, short-term shifts or whatnot, I tend to look at elections. And a few weeks ago, there was an election and uh, Democrats did very well up and down the ballot. Um, We've gotten the popular vote in the last three or four presidential races. And even in the race we lost in Mississippi, uh, Mr. Presley got 97% of the black vote. So I'm not seeing what is being spun out there in Uh, election results. I do think there are certainly are some changes. I think Trump has done some of that. I think the biggest change over the last three or four years has been what was traditionally the battleground has changed and they're, they're voting much more democratic, primarily over some of these extremism issues that we've talked a lot about on our panels. And then obviously I think Dobbs hypercharged that. So not only do you have soccer moms, but now you have their daughters. And I think that has been kind of the biggest shift um, over but the you, last few years. But you agree, I would assume, that really the the predictive attributes right now 
I mean, certainly gender, as you've just explained, but also college degrees. I mean, I think what you're describing, suburban shifts, like, I mean, you've got a college educated, you know, white collar type suburban voters. I agree with you. They voted for Bush. They voted for Romney. They started to gravitate away from Trump and towards uh, Democrats in 18, 20 and 22. If you look at the 23 results in Kentucky, the collars around Louisville and Lexington, certainly Bashir got some of those people. Just the real question for the Republicans is how do you get them back? uh, And can Donald Trump ever get them back? And sort of, is it possible for Joe Biden to hold on to these folks? Because I I get the sense they're not all that happy with him, but I guess the, the enduring strategic question is, could they be unhappy with him, but more afraid of something else and stick with something. That's, I mean, that's what happened in the midterm in 22. You saw these kinds of voters stick with something they didn't like. I've not seen any indication in polling that what I would consider kind of suburbia, particularly what we were talking about in and around suburban women um, have moved off of Joe Biden, uh, where Mm -hmm. we've seen some uh, peeling off younger voters, but younger voters always this time of year, year out bleed off. You tend to see in early polling communities of color not as engaged um, and as hardened. Um, those would be the two kind of groups that we've seen. Um, I think if you're in Joe Biden's camp, you look at that and go, okay, we actually don't have to persuade new voters. We just have to kind of get the people who voted for us and Democrats over the last few cycles to vote for us again, which is a much easier path than saying, oh, I got to go find a new set of voters and convert them. I'm le- I think this is less to do with education and more to do with geography. I think Republicans are doing very well in what I would consider uh, rural areas, which is a large part of the country, flyover country, right, Scott? You got it. <laughs> doing very well there. Um and but there's a lot of well-educated voters in rural America. I think that's one thing the coastal elites don't understand. Um, just because you don't have a fancy degree doesn't mean you're well-educated. Not well-educated. Um, I think this is much more of a rural-urban divide than it is um, over-education. The uh, conversation over age demographics and politics. I mean, obviously the the polling right now and the cable conversation is all causing a conversation nationally about young voters. They don't like Biden. Maybe they were mad about student loans. Now it's Israel. But I think the under the underconversed demo is actually older voters, because for a long time, as you know, older voters, Republicans were reliant on older voters. And then I think in 20 um, older voters, certainly there was some shift towards Joe Biden, probably over covid. I think in 23, there was some at least in my mind, and, I, and all the data is not really in and tabulated or analyzed yet, but it, it strikes me that it's likely we're going to find out that some older voters voted for Andy Bashir for governor, probably over COVID as well. Um, even as they voted for Republicans everywhere else, they may have stuck with him. Do you sense shifting sands on older voters in the way you were discussing, maybe not seeing shifting sands on the other demos? Maybe a little bit. I think it's all within the margins right now. Uh, you know, I did a survey not that long ago and had Biden plus 18 with younger voters. It's about five points off. But when you kind of dig into the guts of things, which obviously in your day-to-day business, you look at a lot of this stuff, half getting back in a few messages, they kind of migrate right back to, you know, the Democrat. It doesn't mean this is going to last, right? I mean, my, our... I would say both of our bookshelves are littered with theories from pollsters about long-term demographics and every four years it changes or so. But I think, yes, Biden's probably a little more comfortable to some older folks. I think just the one big thing that we, as a country, world, society, just the Trump factor has just kind of changed a lot of things. And I think you know, as we head into next year, I just don't know if like the rules of normal politics apply to Trump, both good and bad. And so, as I said in our um, great panel in Kentucky, 
I think for Democrats or left-leaning folks, Trump is a threat to like the world order and democracy and freedom and, and everything. And that is going to be much more of the motivating vote than a singular politician. And Trump, to his credit, he has the ability to turn out his voters that don't seem to be turning out in these other elections, be it the specials that Democrats have won, be it just a few weeks ago, all over the country. Um, Trump is such a big piece of the political pie right now. I don't, I think when he is off stage, I think we may get back to more of a normalcy of kind of how the parties work. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you that there are some just sort of normal campaign rules that don't apply to Trump. I think the people running against him in the Republican primary have found this out. Yep. I mean, there's been <clears throat> there's been reporting about some of the super PACs supporting the other candidates, sort of concluding that television advertising, for example, is totally ineffective uh, against Donald Trump. So they pulled it down. I think Tim Scott's group and also uh, the DeSantis group both kind of came to the mm-hmm. same conclusion. But I also think the same could be true of Biden. I, you know, in some of my uh, work over the last few months, I often ask crowds, you know, is there a single television ad or a single piece of information that you might learn from a TV ad that would change your opinion, good or bad, about Joe Biden? And no one ever says yes. I'm, you know, Trump and Biden are going to be the two most well-defined opponents for the presidency in the history of the country. And so, yes. you know, if you're running attack ads against Trump, probably plinks off of them. If you're running attack ads against Biden, possibly the same. But I'm wondering if, if you think maybe the same will be true for positive ads. Is there, can you actually change an opinion from negative to positive with some sort of, I mean, the Biden folks tried to do this on Bidenomics and spent a fair amount on it. It doesn't appear to have worked. Um, I think this is true of, of negative ads. What's your view of whether they could use positive advertising here to to pull people in? Um, Yeah, listen, I think this is going to be an unusual election, and let's just assume both Biden and Trump are the party nominees. Um, It is really a referendum on both of them. Generally, as you just stated, an incumbent, it's a referendum on them, and you have a challenger, and you're either hiring or firing basically that incumbent. But you have two, a referendum on both of these gentlemen at this point. And so, yeah, I'm not sure the advertising in a traditional way are going to move folks. I think you're going to see hyper-focused micro-targeting, talking to people who may be softer is not as engaged. Uh, In 2020, for example, Scott, our organization, Future Majority, we ran one of the largest youth programs in the country. Never mentioned Joe Biden's name once. Right. What we did was focus on the voter being the hero of the story, not the politician. Mm-hmm. And that we saw huge motivating um, you know, results from that. And so, yeah, I'm not sure the traditional nobody's going to watch a television ad and go, hmm, that was really interesting. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to change my mind. And like we've talked about, I don't think Trump has gained one more vote since he um, has been back on stage. Right. Uh, I just don't see it anywhere. Question is, will will Democrats turn out for Biden and the rest of the ticket? There's still some question mark on that. But by and large, um, you know, he did win by seven million more votes um, last time, had a pretty convincing electoral win despite Trump's spin on it. And. I don't think a whole lot's going to change. I think you're going to see the battlegrounds pretty similar. I think you're going to see the margins pretty similar. I think we know who we have to get out to vote. We're actually pretty good at that. I think we have a lot of money to be able to do that. Um, and so I feel like right now that we probably have a little bit of an advantage going into the election year. But listen, we got two old guys running and who knows. So safe to say you don't, necessarily share my CNN colleagues, David Axelrod's pessimistic assessment of Joe Biden at the moment? Uh, Listen, David is very, very smart. um, But no, I do not agree with him. Listen, if you look at today's numbers, yeah, you'd be a little like, oh, this isn't good. But you have to be able to separate out, I think, this is why polling is like, is basically an indicator, but not the, you know, 
final result. Hey, much like Florida State fans found out this week, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> being in the top four doesn't mean you get to go to the show. That's Joe Biden's right. going to be the nominee. Uh, he's been a good president for at least people who share that perspective. And the opponent is Donald Trump. It, listen, if they somehow can figure out Nikki Haley or one of the other people, which doesn't look like it's going to happen, then yeah, it may be a different conversation. But let's also remember, um, uh, Mr. Axelrod was not really a supporter of Biden for a lot of years. Um, you know, when he ran, you know, this, I guess in uh, 2019, he really wasn't there either. So, um, you know, people can have their opinions. That's fine. There's a there's a debate going on right now among Republicans, but I've, I've heard some journalists now debating it about whether Trump is actually the best or worst nominee for the Republican Party. I think for the most of this primary, sort of the operating theory of the political media was, oh, he's the worst because anybody younger without baggage would present a much tougher challenge for Biden. I was listening to a uh, chat the other day uh, with Dave Katniss from McClatchy, and he was debating this with himself. And his theory was Trump's actually the best because his base is stickier, but mostly because if he doesn't get the nomination, his theory was that he would either go third party or at least encourage his people to sit it out, to punish the Republicans, not wanting another Republican to succeed where he had failed. What What's your view of that? I, I, I mean, I, I certainly argued on TV a fair amount that that a younger nominee just on the age issue <laughs> would present a problem for Biden. But uh, Katniss made me stop and think about whether I was I was right or wrong. I think. Trump is Trump and Trump has stickiness. It doesn't appear that he's been able to use that other than the inside straight he pulled in 2016 to get to an electoral win. The Republicans haven't really won much since then either. So I don't, you know, it's a very strange, when we, we look at him, like, I, we don't understand what is going on in the Republican Party with re, re relating to Trump. You know, uh, the days of the Cheneys, the Romneys, and all Bushes are no longer Republicans. It's still kind of strange with us. Or <laughs> Republicans kind of in name only. Um, oh, oh, yeah, listen, yeah, I'll tell you, I think I'll tell you what's strange for me is having worked for all those people you just mentioned, yeah. the idea that those people are now heroes to Democrats when you were trying to throw us all in jail back in the day. That's <laughs> right. Sort of I think thing to me. <laughs> if Lynn Cheney decided to uh, run as the Democratic president, we'd be like, yes. And then we'd be like, oh, geez, what did we just do? So, no, it is very strange. Um, listen, I think there's an argument to it. I think if you're looking at the environment going in, and Trump projects strength, right? And there's some chaos in the world. Um, Trump, you know, sells himself as a successful businessman. And we know through voters tend to like that. You know, if the economy is, you know, shaky and obviously prices have been up and we could argue those sorts of things. But, you know, people may go, oh, you know, I remember things were good under him. Um, he knows how to put on a show. You, you know, there'll be a few debates. Um, but by and large, I don't think really things have really changed that much since last election. So Trump got 46 percent of the vote in, in two straight elections. And mm -hmm. I have been imagining that that's what he's destined to get in the next yes. election. The only variables to me are two. One uh, is turnout. You brought that up earlier. You know, yep. will, the, will the same high turnout exist or will it go revert to a lower turnout? Uh, and and who are those people? And two, these third party candidates, which is what yeah. I want to ask you about sure. next. You know, ballot access is obviously more difficult than people realize in a lot of states. Do you feel like the the Biden camp is taking the third party threat seriously? I mean, my presumption is is that any state with viable, credible third party options are going to present something of a challenge for him. Maybe a little for Trump, but mostly for Biden. You agree or disagree? Um, I agree with it. I think Kennedy is the biggest obstacle, Scott, um, mm. just because he's got a famous, apparently Democratic last name. Um, West, the oppo book seems to be growing on this guy every day. I just don't think he's a credible third party alternative right now. Jill Stein, I think Democrats kind of saw through that last time she ran. I think what at least our research shows is Plus the courts, um, 
is enough. Trump making an argument on Trump alone may not be enough, but when you present a potential soft voter who's deciding between Biden and a potential third-party candidate, if you throw in the courts, they move pretty quickly over to Biden, whether or not they want to or not. Um, ballot access is hard. Kennedy's obviously got a uh, last name. I think there'll be some work done there. Uh, it's it's something that we're obviously all paying very close attention to. It's also why I said I don't think big, broad TV advertisements are going to be the key. I think you're going to see a lot of very narrow advertising. And it may be as much negative on them than on Trump. You know, can you you know, tell the young voter who's like, hey, I like seeing Cornell West speak about what's going on in the Middle East. I like that guy educating that person what that vote means maybe as important for the democrats as basically saying trump's you know x y or z again which is kind of already built in that voice you hear on the flyover country podcast is mark riddle a longtime democratic party strategist my friend a kentuckian but now a floridian uh and uh, he's he, he moved down to the uh, to the birthplace and home place of freedom in America. And I'm sure it enjoys, if you enjoy your governor down there, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, 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 but he was nice enough to come on the pod and talk politics with me this week. And when we come back, we're going to take a break. I do want to ask Mark about the young voters who are uh, making up, uh, which he has a lot of experience with motivating young voters on the issues around abortion and also the issue uh, emerging right now of Israel and how they are viewing those and whether those are going to be motivating when we come back on Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. Hey there, Flyover Country listeners. Today's episode is brought to you by the Bluegrass Media Lab, Kentucky's premier media studio. The Bluegrass Media Lab offers a wide array of services, including video production, podcasting, live shot broadcasting, web development, media training, and more. You name it, they do it. Head over to bluegrassmedialab.com today to get in touch. Now, back to more Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. And welcome back to Flyover Country. It's Scott Jennings. Thanks for being with us. We're in the second part of a two-part conversation, one with a Republican strategist and one with a Democrat strategist, who we have this week, Mark Riddle, is the president of the Future Majority which is a strategy and creative center that advocates for a freedom-focused agenda that makes American workers the hero of our nation's story. He's with a firm called Wildcat Digital. He is a longtime Democratic strategist, and he's my friend and, and frequent sparring partner out on the uh, corporate speaking circuit, and I've known Mark <laughs> for a lot of years. And actually, Mark, uh, one of our panels gave me the idea that it would be kind of interesting to present uh, to our audience uh, sort of a two-part series talking to a Republican talking to a Democrat, and we're grateful for Patrick Ruffini for coming on last week and grateful for you coming on this week. I know in some of your work that you do uh, on the Democratic side, a lot of it has to do with motivating young voters yep. to turn out for Democrats. Obviously, there have been two emergent issues uh, lately. One is uh, manifest itself in recent elections, and that's abortion. The other uh, is this whole issue of Israel and Hamas. Uh, let's start with abortion. Is that still the dominant sort of motivating issue for young voters, or are we seeing other things creep in? Sure. Um, I think the simple answer to that is yes. But the way I look at um, the reproductive freedom issue is this. I think it's a value and less so maybe than an issue. And for... Democratic voters, particularly younger voters, I think it is probably the ultimate sign of extremism from the other side, uh, the Supreme Court, uh, local courts or whatnot. And traditionally in our country, when we start taking things away from people, they get very upset. So I think it is a, a larger issue than just the question of abortion. I do think it is kind of a fundamental issue of our country centered in and around freedom, which we've studied a ton of. Um, and so, yeah, I think it is, will be a dominant issue uh, in uh, the election coming up. There's ballot initiatives that have won in places like Kansas and Kentucky and Montana. But I do think, you know, other issues will creep up as we get closer to the election. And also, I think one of the interesting questions is going to be, 
in places like the New York congressional districts, California congressional districts for the balance of power of Congress, or, you know, a place like Michigan, right, where maybe uh, abortion rights are a little more protected. Is that because is that still the salient issue that it was a few years ago um, to those voters if in a, in a few particular places? So I say, yes, Democrats are going to spend a lot of time and energy talking about that. Trump obviously nominated the Supreme Court. Trump doesn't, I don't know, he's not really clear where he is on the, those sorts of issues, but I think it's a larger values issue. It will certainly be that. I think also um, the, the mass shootings in schools, I think you're going to see a lot of communications around the climate for younger voters. And so I think kind of that trio, plus what President Biden has worked on on student debt, and also there's a lot of, you know, activity in small businesses and such, but it will be a predominant issue. But I think people view it very narrowly as a question about abortion. And it's a larger question about, I think, where we are as a country and freedoms and rights and, and such. And like I said, to open the conversation, all these theories really work until you piss off the women and the women are still pretty upset and their daughters are upset and they're going to the polls in you know, race or Kentucky or Ohio just a few weeks ago, uh, when women kind of move as a block, you know, all the theories go out the window. Yeah, the abortion issue, obviously the Republicans are wrestling with in the wake of the Dobbs decision. And it strikes me that the sort of the core difference between the two parties strategically is that the Republicans just don't have a unified position on what what it's supposed to be. Democrats have largely a unified position. Um, and so you see that sort of play out differently in different elections. In the Kentucky governor's race here, which you and I had some conversations about, it wasn't so much the weeks, you know, the the limit on weeks. It was just simply just a discussion about the exceptions. And of course, Kentucky's law does not contain exceptions for uh, rape and incest. It does have uh, health and life of the mother. And that rape and incest exception, I think, really with the Bashir advertising really did seep in. On the tactical issue with Trump, I, I'm wondering if you think Democrats are preparing for a world where he, he totally abandons the pro-life position that he staked out. I mean, he all, often described himself as the most pro-life president, uh, obviously appointed the, the Supreme Court and spoke at the March for Life. I mean, he, he is recognized by Republicans as an extremely pro-life president. I get the feeling he seems to think maybe this is no longer a winning issue for him. Uh, what's your what? What are Democrats anticipating Trump will do? Oh, I think Trump will try to change the conversation. I think he will throw out certain number try to see to moderate their position on it. Actually, I think it oddly going back to the Kentucky governor's race. If you remember, there was a series of articles where Trump was educating people about changing their you know positions on it, and Cameron seemed to flip flop on the issue from kind of much more of an extreme position to not so much. And he kind of got turned in knots and it wasn't really a good week for his campaign when he needed a good week. Um, I don't know. There's enough videotape out there. Plus he also did appoint those uh, justices. Um, I think he can say it goes back to the larger question that you asked earlier, Scott, which I think is the right one. Does it really matter what he says or not say? I mean, he's kind of defined. Yeah. It doesn't really matter what Joe Biden says or doesn't say. He's kind of defined. I think these things will be argued around the edges. But I think if you're talking about younger voters, the threat is there. Look at Florida, which you mentioned, where I live now, six weeks, right? Like, there's a big battle internally in the Republican Party over this. It used to be the Democrats. We'd argue over weeks, a month, this and that in weird terms. The script has been flipped um, on this. I feel like we've got the advantage um, on this issue. My hope as a, an American, frankly, as a citizen, is both sides after this election can come together, figure out, you know, a set of rules, right? So we're not making people fly to different states or you'd be put in jail for something done in one state and not another. I think there needs to be a larger conversation maybe so we can resolve this issue moving forward, um, you know, but it could also resolve itself. I mean, we Democrats could keep on winning, 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 and the courts will change over time and may moderate itself through a court case again. Let me uh, uh, stay with younger voters, but shift 
issue topics to this emerging uh, activism around the Israel-Hamas war. Obviously, a lot has been made of uh, younger voters not agreeing with Joe Biden in his pro-Israeli statements. We have seen some waffling from Biden and some softening of the rhetoric on Israel from when it started to <laughs> this past you know, few days. Uh, uh, where do you think this issue ranks in? I mean, obviously it's hot right now, but we're still 11 months from the election. And is this going to become a dominant sort of benchmark issue for younger voters, or do you see it coming and going? Yeah, needless to say, anything in that part of the world is coming. Um, and these particular sets of issues are global issues. You know, my take on it so far is if you're upset with Joe Biden on this issue, where are you going to go? I mean, Donald Trump's first act, if I remember, was a Muslim ban. I think he actually doubled down on that the other day. Uh, Again, uh, rounding up people. It's not like they have a natural home to go to. Like, oh, this is going to be this, right? There's not a third-party candidate running on this. It's not a local election. Um, War is always complicated in the Democratic Party. (laughs) Remember, you know, Barack Obama, Hillary, war and peace tends to get, you know, complex internally. I still think there's a long ways to go uh, on this. I think the media, you know, there are obviously uh, issues at universities. There's, I'm not minimizing it, but there's not the huge protest that maybe we've even seen in Europe and Britain and France and other places. I think we get through the holidays. I think we could take a look at some numbers then and see how this is trending. By and large, I don't think this is going to be a huge electoral issue. I could be wrong Uh, because Biden and Trump essentially have the same position, be strong and be in favor of Israel. I, I saw the, I think in the news this morning, Jared Kushner had, dinner in New York with like the, the Qatari foreign minister and a bunch of uh, Jewish businessmen. They, there's not a differentiator really, I think, between either of them um, at this point. Remember, Bibi was Trump's best friend until he said Biden won the election, right? Like, I just don't think they, I don't think there's much daylight between the two individuals in this. And if you're upset, you could stay home, but there's a lot of other things on the ballot. And I don't think there's a natural outlet to, for somebody to go to, if you are upset about what's going on, I would say, and somebody spent time over there. Um, I think Biden has shown a tremendous amount of leadership. We could have very easily been in world war three, right? Like this could have been a lot I mean, it's bad, but it could be a lot worse. I think moving the military in the aircraft carriers, right signals to Iran, working with people. Lincoln get, should get a lot of credit for kind of uh, the diplomacy. I think this recent ceasefire, getting a lot of the hostage women and children hostages, I think they're continuing to work on that, getting humanitarian aid in. So, you, yeah, you said he's kind of shifted around, but I think they're trying to figure out, make sure there's not so many people are getting killed every day. Are you alarmed by the amount of anti-Semitism in the country. I, I am. I mean, obviously, I during the Trump years, there, there was, you know, the Charlottesville, I think, is one of the most memorable or seminal moments of the Trump presidency. It's stuck with him. It will always be with him. But I look at what I see on college campuses in Philadelphia uh, just the other night. You know, there were people outside of a Jewish-owned restaurant, you know, screaming at the guy to come out, charging him with genocide. I mean, I, I have been alarmed by what I am seeing in terms of just the blatant anti-Semitism and the really the chasing around of Jewish people, whether it's in a city setting or on a college campus. How is this sitting with you? I mean, it, you know, it, it we just haven't seen this in this country in, in, in a very long time. You and I agree hundred percent on this. I am shocked. I'm saddened, disgusted. People need to grow up. I think people need to really understand history I do think a lot of this is being driven by the extremes that we see on social media. I think there are foreign actors involved stirring people up. You know, TikTok, I think a real conversation should be happening in our country about the utility of TikTok or not. 
Um, it's just wrong. It's wrong to pick on anybody, frankly, but the anti-Semitism, particularly on campuses, need to stop, period, end of sentence. I, I tend to agree with you that TikTok is a disseminator, a rapid disseminator of stupidity or worse all the time. And this, I think a lot of what people are learning about this conflict or really anything else, uh, especially young people, which you obviously deal with in your your consulting business a lot, is coming from TikTok. Do you think the White House should show more leadership on this or show, show a little more teeth to TikTok on this and demand uh, or, or something further than demand uh, a clampdown on on the dissemination of what is clearly hateful information and, and misinformation? Uh, yes, I do think the White House should show more leadership. I think there should be congressional hearings over this right now. I think both newly um, minted Speaker Johnson should hold hearings. I think Senator Schumer should hold hearings. I think this is a national security issue that the Chinese government has one of the largest platforms in our country on a on a popular app that is disseminating information. I'm not sure. I'm sure you saw the Osama bin Laden video praising, yeah. you know, these letters uh, uh, about a week ago. I think this a lot of this is being propagated by foreign actors um, and, 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 and people with ill intent. And unfortunately, I don't think people are well educated on this issue at all. And I think I think this should be investigated. I think there should be clamping down on, on it. Um, I would be plenty good if we ridded ourselves in our society of things like TikTok, because I think it is not good for not good for um, young people. They should go read a book instead. Let me uh, bring up a phrase that's come up. Uh, in some polling uh, or, or some phrases. And I want to get your take on the issue of democracy. Democrats have obviously argued that Trump is a danger to democracy. And you look in the polling, the national polling, and you always see is it, it pops as a top issue for Democrats, the defense of democracy, protection of democracy. Lately, I have been noticing that for Republicans or Trump supporters, that defending democracy has also started to creep up as a top issue. Obviously, what it means to one group is different than what it means to the other group. I even saw a few days ago at a Trump event, they had signs at the event printed up that said, you know, Joe Biden, you know, I think it said a tax democracy or something like that. So you can see that for the Trump Republican uh, establishment, that 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 is going to become something that they deal with. What's your view of the issue of democracy as it relates to Biden's re-election. Are you worried about Trump being able to muddy the waters on the terminology, or do you think this issue is already kind of baked and people people believe what they believe? I think people believe what they believe. I think Trump's strategy is to muddy waters as much as he can look at the oddity around this whole ongoing impeachment thing. I think this defend, you know, that they're the defenders of democracy is people are going to believe what they're going to believe. And Fox news may kind of push it out. I actually have a little bit of a different take on this than some of my compatriots and probably with uh, whatnot. I think people have their hard time getting their arms wrapped around the word democracy because mm -hmm. we just had voting and it worked. We've had a lot of elections, right? And so it hasn't been taken away. Yes, voting rights get taken away. There was the craziness around January 6th and the Electoral College and whatnot. We've had a lot of elections on it. I think the, going back to what we talk a lot about, a future majority, I think Biden led his campaign with the word freedom. I would advise them to continue to stick to that. That is a, a superseding value. Democracy can be tied into it, but democracy itself as a as a word, I'm not sure. I know it's popular to talk about, but I think the freedom to vote, have that vote counted, is a, is a bigger, more powerful argument than democracy unto itself. Yeah, I um, I I'm imagining that in order to try to change the topic from 
perhaps uh, shakier terrain like the economy that the, the Biden operation will want to talk a lot about this genre of issues. So I'm not surprised to see Trump trying to get in on that conversation. It will be interesting to see how Americans process that. Do, do you, Democrats are sort of wondering how it can be that someone who was at the center of January 6th could, with less than a year to go before a presidential election, be leading to, to return to the White House. I mean, I have assumed that Democrats look at these polls and just lose their minds over that. Oh, every minute of every day. The good thing is it keeps me busy. <laughs> a lot of phone calls. A lot of people, what do we do? Um, yeah, but it goes, Scott, it goes back to the earlier point we were discussing with the, um, I think the Reuters reporter about Trump being maybe their best nominee. Because Trump is at 40 or 5 or 46 pretty much in every poll. And has continued to be there kind of for years. He's, I used to kind of laugh that his magic number was 44. Right. Mm-hmm. Every poll you got back. Trump was at 44 or 45. 40. It kind of is the same. When I say he's not over 50. And he's not over 50 in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Georgia, Arizona, Nevada, even North Carolina. And so if you look at the set of voters available that we that Democrats need to move, it's much easier terrain than Trump trying to move suburban women, younger people, people, communities of color, a much easier terrain for Joe Biden with Democrats to get to the win than Trump just sticking at around 46. So yes, polling drives Democrats crazy. If you ask the next few questions in polling, which is what we do a lot, you'll find that the messaging and the terrain are a lot easier on our side to replicate what looks like, you know, kind of round, I guess, Rocky three of in 2024. I just, uh, the numbers work out much better. Trump actually has to, one has to go find new voters. What I'm saying is we don't. Are you surprised that someone credible did not challenge Joe Biden in the primary? Not surprised at all. Um, think if, if Democrats, I often say, what do what do Democrats have to be upset about? Um, the Chips Act, bipartisan bill, infrastructure bill that's been talked about for years and years and years, just fixing stuff, not a partisan issue, right? Got it done. Mitch McConnell, big supporter of, right? We're getting stuff done in Kentucky, broadband, bridges, whatnot. Um, could debate whether or not, right, it's much more partisan argument over all the investments in clean energy and whatnot. Um, some of the bipartisan gun legislation. Biden kind of got a lot of big things done when he had the ability to do it with Democrats in office. Some of, you know, I think a big conversation moving forward is going to be the Affordable Care Act. Motivates Democrats, Republicans fired up about it. Not really been a winning issue for Republicans over the years. Trump kind of stuck his eye, you know, finger in the eye of that the other day. No, I'm not surprised at all. I think uh, to many of us, Biden's been a very good president. Uh, he he has run the country well. Um, and if you're an up and comer, incumbency is tough, right? He has a lot. He's raising a lot of money. Um, everybody's unified. And I think, honestly, if Trump didn't run, I think there would be a different set of circumstances. I'm mm. not sure Biden would have run if Trump wasn't running. Mm. If it was DeSantis, Haley, Scott, others would have probably jumped in. I'm not sure the president would be like, you know, I it's time for me to pass pass the you know the torch. I think you'd see you know Newsom and Whitmer and others, Harris, others in, uh, no disrespect to anybody I didn't mention, but, you know, moving along. Um, <laughs> Jamie Pritzker, don't want to get in trouble with anybody, but um, I don't, I think we'd have had a much different circumstance if Trump hadn't decided to run. I think if you're the president, you're like, I beat him. I can beat him again in the Midwest states. Um, I, I put together a winning coalition against Trump. I look at the numbers. It looks doable again. 
Both guys are certainly older than I think a lot of the country is comfortable with. Um, I think they just kind of viewed as a you know round whatever of a old heavyweight fight. I think if Biden hadn't run, I'm not sure what Trump does. I think they kind of need each other in a weird way. Yeah, I've described them as being magnets for each other. You yeah. know, Trump so badly wants to avenge his his loss to Biden. Biden thinks he's the the Democrat who exists to to keep Trump out of the White House, and so in a lot of ways. They're magnets. Do you believe uh, so? Well, let me start here. Sure. You think a zero percent chance that we could see different nominees or you think still a one percent chance that either party could do something different? Kind of feels like the end of Dumb and Dumber. So maybe there's a chance, right? <laughs> yeah. um, no, listen, short of a health incident, right? Very real yeah. possibility for any human, but older folks particularly. On both sides, I mean, Trump, 77, I think. Um, health incident on either side, um, obviously unknown things. But by and large, if things are the status quo with people's health or what politically or whatever, I, I think it will be Trump and Biden, yes. All right, if you had to put 20 bucks on it today, will Trump and Biden debate each other next fall? Yes, you think yes? All right, yes, let's do a do. quick uh, let's do a quick roundup on the Senate. Uh, Republicans feel very good about the chance to pick up the majority. Uh, the races in question: West Virginia kind of, I think, came off the board when Manchin retired. You've got Sherrod Brown in Ohio, Tester now in Montana, and maybe some shots in Pennsylvania and Arizona uh, as well. What's your view of the Senate map? And do Democrats really think? they could put Texas or Florida on the board? Um, I think the Senate's going to be a, a coin toss on election night. Obviously, the Senate plays a very role, important role, particularly with judges. I would agree with you, West Virginia stuff. I think Casey's stronger than people think in Pennsylvania. I think Sherrod Brown is stronger than people think in Ohio. Tester's his own brand in Montana. Um Feels like Arizona. I think Lake was probably wasn't the smartest pickup, you know, for the nominee for Republicans there. I think Lake uh, Rubin, you know, can win. I'm not 100 percent sure Cinema runs. So I think you know, I think we've got stronger candidates in tougher states. Math matters, as we've talked a lot about. Um, these are going to be. It's going to be tough. Yep, I think Florida's 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 Chuck Todd will say Florida, Florida, Florida. Um, I think. Rick Scott has never been liked, but he has a lot of resources. Um, and can, you know, Merskel Powell put together a statewide campaign, I, I think is still a question mark, but there'll be, you know, there'll be some resource put here. The question is, is the presidential play here or not? I, Inkling is a probably play in North Carolina instead, just kind of my gut, little head mm. fake. Florida's really expensive. And, you know, Al Alred is a quality candidate. From an NFL football player, you've got kind of two unlikable guys in Cruz and Scott. Doesn't mean they won't win. I think they'll be more competitive than people think. The one thing that our side over the last few cycles have, have had going for us is the ability to raise large sums of money if something's at stake. And if it comes down to one of those two states and a wink or a nod from somebody says, hey, we're going to go there and make a bet, I think th those races will be funded and competitive. Probably still advantage Republicans, I'd say, in the Senate, maybe by a seat. But also, we're getting a lot of retirements and a lot of people saying, do I really want to go do this again? So, I don't know. There could be some last-minute shuffles. Maybe a little early to make a prediction on the House next year, see how the presidential campaign unfolds. But I will ask you about one specific House race, and that is the upcoming special election in Long Island for the Santos seat obviously republicans and democrats tossed him and now we'll have a special are you looking at that race as sort of a bellwether type election you think you're going to see sort of the 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 emerging themes for both parties there i'm sure they'll have all their best minds on it turnout strategies messaging strategies is do you think we'll learn something about where the country's headed from that race republican had it biden won it is this a bellwether for you I never particularly think special elections are bellwethers because they don't really have traditional turnouts. 
So you really kind of have really only really motivated people voting. So I've never viewed specials. Frankly, I've never really viewed like these off-year elections as predictors um, on things. So I think uh, I think we're all grateful the Santos era is coming to an end and that sideshow. I think it'll be a competitive race. The Democrats will have a good, good candidate there. A lot of resources will be spent. Um, I do think for the path to the House, I think you're going to learn some things there, much more so maybe than the presidential, because there are several other New York seats in play. So I think um, Leader Jeffries um, and others will be spending more time on this because I believe a win there for the Democrats parlays in making like the case that some of these other seats in New York are more doable than not. Maybe a better predictor for the House than uh, the presidential. Mark Riddle, Democrat strategist. You've been a great guest. Thanks for being with us on Flower Country. If you want to get in touch with Mark, you can find him at a firm called Wildcat Digital. He is also the president of Future Majority, which is a Democratic advocacy group that helps to mobilize voters in elections, and he is not a hard man to find. Mark, thank you for being with us. Appreciate our panels and conversations this year, and I'm sure you and I will see each other in the near future. Although we keep seeing each other in Kentucky, I need to make a concerted effort to get down to Florida over the winter. Come down to Florida, Scott. It's always great spending time with you, and I wish you and your family well over the holiday. And uh, make sure the wind doesn't take that ginormous Santa that you all have in front of your house away <laughs> in one of these storms. <laughs> oh yeah, we've got we've got a couple of big inflatables and I have to I have a constant wind monitoring going on cuz <laughs> when those things catch catch it just right, they could they could fly away. One's a chicken actually. We've got a big <laughs> Santa chicken 9 feet tall. So we're uh, we're we're excited about that. Mark Riddle, thanks a lot and thank you all for listening. This is Flyover Country. I'm Scott Jennings. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is a production of Bluegrass Media Lab, coming to you from the heart of Middle America, Louisville, Kentucky. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Flyover Country on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts.